Well, my name is Kathy, and I am thrilled that you are here this summer to study with us. Who are these guys anyway in the books of Titus, Philemon, and Jude? And today and for the next two weeks, we're going to be specifically looking at Titus and figuring out who these guys are. If you are... Um, New to us, um, welcome to Women in the Word. We're thrilled you're here. If you've been here um, a thousand times, we're glad you're here as well. We love the Bible. I love the Bible. We love talking about it and seeing who Christ is and what he has to say to us. So let's just go ahead and jump right into the scriptures. If you have your Bible or your verse sheet, pull it out and turn to Titus chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and read those first five verses. And we're going to look at the two guys that are mentioned here in this passage. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There are two guys that are mentioned in that passage, Paul, and you may have had a chance in your small group time to look up some verses about Paul as well as about Titus. Paul was a very strict Jew for a long time, kept the law, hated Christians, hated people that followed Jesus, and had a pretty dramatic change and became a Christian, was a missionary, a servant, um, wrote uh, many of the letters that are included in the New Testament as a part of our scriptures. And he had a friend, actually a very longtime friend, named Titus. I went through and put on your verse sheet, if you didn't have a chance to get to them, you can get to them sometime this week if you want to. Actually, I put down every passage in the Bible that includes a reference to the person of Titus. So you can go look those up. Interestingly enough, Galatians, where Titus is mentioned, is likely the first letter that Paul wrote that we have included in the scriptures. Titus, where obviously Titus is mentioned, is his second to last probably. Second Timothy would be probably the last letter that Paul wrote, and Titus is mentioned there as well. So we see, as we look at Titus, a man that probably had at least this 20-year relationship with Paul, knowing each other, um, doing ministry together. Titus didn't have the same upbringing that Paul did. He did not grow up a strict Jew. We learned that in Galatians. And so we see these two men who, after 20 years at least of doing ministry together, of sharing Christ, probably knowing each other pretty well, Paul is writing this letter to Titus, probably near the end of Paul's ministry. I also thought it was interesting, if you didn't get a chance to read all those verses in 2 Corinthians, I thought it was so interesting to see there's a letter, sometimes we call it the missing letter, it's not missing, God knows where it is, it just, he didn't intend it for scripture, that was a letter that Paul sent to the people of Corinth, because the people of Corinth were in a really bad place, and it was a pretty harsh, he meant it out of love, but a pretty harsh rebuking letter, things were not good. Guess who Paul gave the letter to to take it to him? Titus. Do you give that kind of letter to just anybody? Do you trust that kind of letter to just anyone? It was really interesting for me. Um, 
I'd read the book of Titus before, but kind of looking at all the verses and piecing together Titus's life and his relationship with Paul and that closeness was very interesting and intriguing for me. And we see Paul starting this letter to Titus and saying, Titus, I need you to stay in Crete. The gospel had likely just come to Crete. So these are people who have believed in Christ or new Christians in Crete. The gospel is new there. And he says, I'm going to leave you, Titus, in Crete, and I want you to tell these Christians there what does the Christian life look like because it's new there. They don't know. How does what you believe impact your life? Additionally, he says they've never really had a Christian church there, so let's set up a Christian church. What is that supposed to look like? And as someone, meaning me, who's supposed to come teach this to you, and I start looking at this history, and I'm kind of like, well, we're not really a new church. Um, there are a lot of pretty well put together building here that indicates that we're not really new. So we're in a little different place than Paul was writing to Titus. Uh, the gospel isn't new to Fort Worth. It may be new to you or you may be here checking it out and figuring out what Jesus is about, which is great. But it's not new to the city. It's not new to the area. It's not a new church. And I kind of thought, okay, God, I know that you intend for us women to learn from this as well, but we aren't really, generally speaking, in the same situation that Paul was writing to Titus. So I began to ask myself, okay, as a group of women this summer in Fort Worth, Texas at Christ Chapel Bible Church, what questions do we ask of the book of Titus? Like, how do we take what was written to a very different group of people in a lot of ways, and how do we take and make it matter and apply it to us? And so I kind of began to ask myself three questions, and I thought, you know, Paul is writing to Titus, and he says to them, tell these Christians that their faith really matters and impacts their lives. So I thought, you know, we really can ask the same question. Does the Christian lifestyle in a healthy church matter? Does that matter? Well, my guess is that you would say yes. In fact, one of the objections that some people have to Christianity, I was in a small group actually about three weeks ago, and Ashley Freer, who's here, was facilitating a conversation, and she said to the group, as people that are around you, um, as you mentioned Christianity, or what do people say about Christianity in your circles? And immediately about three people in the group said the same thing. They think we're a bunch of hypocrites. So the world obviously thinks that the lifestyle of a Christian and the lifestyle of a church or the health of a church, they seem to at least imply that it matters. And some people, even when you're talking with them about Christianity, they'll mention historically Christian nations and their imperialism or a part of the African slave trade. For some people, this is a really big stumbling block to believing in Jesus. So I would say... I mean, at least for me personally, my spiritual health matters to me. It probably does to you or you wouldn't be here. And it certainly matters, at least to the world. They're looking at it and calling us to some sort of account. So they would say it matters. So then I began to ask the question, well, how are we doing? If the book of Titus was Paul writing to Titus and saying, let's show these new Christians what their life is supposed to look like and what a church is supposed to look like, for me, it at least prompted me to go, well, I wonder how I'm doing. Like, how is my spiritual health going? I mean, I go to the dentist, I go to the doctor to get a physical to kind of check in to see how things are going. It at least made sense to me I should consider that reading Titus. 
And then in reading through it, what are some of the challenges that we face now? Just like Paul was writing to Titus in a certain culture, what are some challenges that we face that prevent us or that we are trying to overcome in being a spiritually healthy church and a spiritually healthy group of people? I don't know about you, but I personally, as I thought about it, I thought I'd really like to know what Titus says about these things because I'd like to know the answer to that. Because first of all, I'd like to be healthy just in general, including spiritually. And the world is certainly looking at me and at our church and expecting something out of us, expecting some sort of representation of Jesus. So I think it's probably worth our time to dig into Titus and see how we do it. What are the things that are making it difficult for us? How are we not healthy? And what can we do about it? So today, as we look at Titus, I'm going to lay a little bit of an overview. And then as we go through Titus and Jude and Philemon, we're going to essentially work through the same theme this summer. Your faith in Jesus should impact your life and should impact your church. It should impact your spiritual health and how you're doing and your freedom and your joy and your peace in Christ, as well as what other people think of Jesus. So I think it's worth our time to look at, don't you think? Okay, great. Let's do it. So turn with me to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, and it is going to address one of the first challenges that I think we run into in our lifestyle as Christians, as well as the health of our church. For we ourselves, starting Titus 3, verse 3 through 8 is what I'm going to read. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Excellent and profitable for people. He's naming some things of what spiritually healthy is going to look like. If we read back through this, it points real clearly to one of our key problems. And it's a little bit of a no-brainer, but it's worth considering. Here's one of our first challenges that we face today. Christians, and therefore churches, aren't perfect. So when people look at us, when I look at my spiritual health, I still have work to do. I'm not perfect. I'm not healthy. Titus 3 lays this out. He says, Jesus didn't come in verse 5 to save us because of our works done in righteousness. And then he tells us in verse 8, I want you to be careful to devote yourself to good works. So what we need is a realistic understanding of salvation. And the first thing is, first of all, you're not perfect. There's still work left to be done. So Paul, in speaking to Titus and saying, hey, let's figure out how to work and flesh this thing out, he was talking to a group of people like us that weren't perfect. Secondly, he was, however, talking to a group of people that had been significantly changed. And that is the reality that we see here mentioned in Titus 3, 3 through 8. 
There has been regeneration and renewal. Jesus has come, died on the cross for sins, been raised again, and come to live inside of Christians. There's been a radical change that has occurred. So as we are thinking about our spiritual health, and as people are looking at us as Christians and in the church, we have to acknowledge that one of the challenges we face as they look at us for wanting a representation of Christ is what? We're not perfect. So how do we as Christian women need to respond to that? We need to not be okay staying where we are. We need to not be okay just staying status quo. It would be really sad if we read Titus, Philemon, and Jude this summer and didn't learn or change or grow at all. We also need to take the next step in our own life toward godliness and encourage the people around us. The blank on your outline at the end of this sentence is faith in Jesus acknowledges your imperfection, but it necessitates a change. So our study this summer includes us seeking to change and grow and be more spiritual healthy. It's interesting that, you know, some people want to look at the quote-unquote hypocrisy of Christianity and say, let's just toss it out. I'm not believing in God. I'm not going there at all. Well, Martin Luther King Jr., known clearly for his stand against racism and slavery and all those things, do you know what his answer was? His answer wasn't, let's throw Christianity out. His answer was, we need a more authentic, real living out of what Christianity is. He called people to justice. He called people to a biblical view of forgiveness. He called people to grace. So as people look at us and say, there's hypocrisy, you don't need it, at least Martin Luther King Jr. would say, absolutely we need it. We need it in a more genuine, authentic way. And that is what the book of Titus is pushing us toward. It's saying, Kathy, you're not perfect, but let's not stay there. Let's take a step into a more deeper, authentic view of Christianity and what that lifestyle is supposed to look at. The first challenge is we're not perfect. Here's the second challenge, and I think it's totally implied, even as we start the whole book of Titus, and Paul says to Titus, of course, in chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then Titus begins to, Paul describes to Titus how he is supposed to teach these new Christians in Crete to live. Well, his entire expectation is what? That Christianity and the things that come with it are different, at least to some degree, than what life was like in Crete before. Um, on your outline, the Christian lifestyle and Christian church do not exactly match any other culture. And that's part of why Paul is telling Titus, go, because something has changed. Things in Crete for these people shouldn't remain the same. And I think as we look at our culture, as we look at all cultures, in my opinion, there are things about every culture um, that probably do line up some with Christianity and some things that don't. And we all have lived in different places, had different families, had different backgrounds. We've all been influenced by different things in our own experiences and in the cultures in which we have been raised and lived. Currently, right now, as I was thinking about our culture, at least from an external perspective, whether you're a Christian or not, it's pretty hip, cool, and whatever you want to call it, it's pretty hip to serve other people. 
I mean, with, um, you know, last night on TV, there's the big concert for what's happened in Oklahoma, and they want you to give. Let's go help the people in West. The people in Boston, let's show our support to them. Let's go to water wells and do Africa. In our culture, that idea of serving and good works, not that they're from the exact same motivation as Christianity, but that's okay in our culture, generally speaking, right? That, that's okay. However, currently in our culture, in many areas, if you believe that um, life begins at the moment of conception and that a baby in a mother's womb is a life and should be protected and that abortion should be illegal and that that is killing and murder, in many parts of our country, that's not particularly hip, is it? No. So there are parts of our cultures that line up with Christianity and there are parts that don't. So we have to, if we want to be spiritually healthy, have a biblical worldview instead of a cultural one. And the application I put on here is know the Bible and adjust to its perspective rather than trying to make it fit into your culture, ignoring it or rationalizing it. Now, for not all of us, but for many of us in the room, that's not necessarily a new thought. Maybe you've been around or heard, can you need to think biblically or whatever. But sometimes I don't think we realize the depth to which we need to go with that. And I've asked a friend who's in the room if I could tell a story, Laura Yavarino. So if you're looking over at her, she already knows I'm telling this story and she's okay with it. Her husband, Ray, um, not very long ago, started to get this rash and they couldn't figure out what was wrong or what they needed to do about it. And clearly he's not healthy, so they go to all these doctors over the course of months, literally. And they're like, well, it's this, well, it's that, well, there's something wrong with your liver or whatever. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. He couldn't get healthy. And then one night, their daughter had a nightmare, came and got in bed with them, and they had already looked around their house, looked at all these places, trying to figure out what was wrong. And their daughter comes, gets in their bed, and wakes up the morning with a rash, and they realize, I bet we've got bed bugs. So they start looking, and I will not tell you all the details because then all you will be doing is scratching for the rest of women in the world. <laughs> Laura, I called Laura yesterday. I was like, okay, remind me of the story. I don't want to mess up the details. And I was like, I'm not telling that part because that just freaks me out. And then we're all going to be thinking about bed bugs for all women in the world. And so they had to treat their house for bed bugs. Well, to treat their house for bed bugs, to make sure they were healthy, every piece of fabric in their house had to be washed at a certain degree of temperature. Before they could leave their house during this two-week period of treating their house, before they could leave their house, the clothes that they were going to go out of their house in had to be in the dryer for 30 minutes at a certain degree of temperature. Anything that could not get wet had to go in a plastic tote. Anything in their house. Everything was sprayed, put in a plastic tote with chemical bags. Or according to Laura, some things they just decided weren't worth it. They had a dumpster put out in their front driveway and things started getting dumped. Two dumpsters full just didn't make it through the Yevarino bed bug fiasco. For them to be healthy in their home, everything had to be touched. It wasn't tweak. It wasn't go spray a little here. Everything in our lives has to be touched and gone through the lens of Scripture. 
it's not a small thing. And some things we have to toss away in the dumpster. Some things, similar to our culture, can stay. But when we think about adjusting to a biblical worldview, we kind of think, oh yeah, read the Bible a little, go to Women in the Word, listen to a sermon. That is not, simply that, is not adjusting your life to a biblical worldview. It is taking, you can choose to live with bedbugs if you want to. Like, it was their, I mean, they didn't have to do that. They could have lived with bedbugs. You can choose to do that. I can choose to do that if I want to. Or we can choose to take the implications of scriptures into literally every nook and crevice of our lives so that we end up spiritually healthy. So you may not be thinking, okay, Kathy, I get it. I need to change. I need to work on some things in my life. Okay, fine. Tell me what to do. We're good to go. Just give me a list. We'll be fine. Well, there's one more thing that I think is a challenge for us that I think is really important because I think this is what trips me up, honestly, a lot of times. And it points to, as I've read and studied and the commentaries I've read, we're really getting to the key of Titus, this passage we're going to get into. And if you think about going on a trip, you can be in your driveway, in your car, cars packed, ready, got the map, everything's in there. But if you've put the wrong kind of fuel in your car, how far are you going to go? If you put diesel fuel in your unleaded car, how far are you going to go? Not real far. You put unleaded fuel in your car, how far are you going to go? Not real far. And sometimes I think, we think, all right, I got to change. I'm not perfect. I need this biblical worldview. And then you try it, and then you're like, look back and you're like, like, why is there no progress? I mean, no progress. I haven't gone anywhere. Sometimes we unintentionally as Christians, the challenge we face is that we use wrong, unhelpful motivations and trainers for change, which really just don't end up making a difference. We stay spiritually unhealthy, and our churches are. Actually, don't yet look at your Bible. Look at your outline. Don't yet look in your Bible, because first I want to tell you how I, my guess is you, get it wrong. Why sometimes we're sitting in the car thinking, why am I not going anywhere? Titus 2, which we're going to read in a minute in verse 11. But look on your outline under challenge. It says for question mark. And I put a question mark there intentionally. We're going to get to the right answer, but I want to explain some of the wrong answers first. For question mark, whatever has appeared. That has appeared for what purpose? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, which is what we've been talking about. We want to be spiritually healthy, have a spiritually healthy church. This is where we're getting this from in Titus. So what fuel, if you want to be miserable, and I do this plenty of times, if you want to be miserable and unhealthy, I would like to give you suggestions of how I've tried to do it. And you can choose to do them if you want to. You probably have done some of them and some more of your own. Carrie's laughing at me. Um, If you want to be unhealthy, here's mine. If you know me very well, I'm a list girl. Give me a list. I like an empty inbox at the end of the day, and most days it happens. You give me a list, and I will rock that list. And oftentimes, when I totally, when I look at Christianity through the lens of it's only a list, here's what happens. I do the list. Maybe we'll call it the law. And you know what happens? As a Christian, I don't always do the list. 
I miss some things on the list. A lot of times I miss some things on the list. So I end up being hopeless because I can never get it all right. And eternity is out of reach if the core of me is depending on a list. In fact, Galatians tells us the law, the list of things that God had given as a law, which were good things. Do you know what? They were kind of supposed to make you hopeless. They were supposed to make you realize you couldn't do it on your own and that you needed a savior. A list for me is bad fuel for my car. doesn't work. Let me tell you some other things I try. Sometimes I think, you know what? I really need to feel better about myself. Need to pull it together, Kath. Need to be better. So I go off and I try with making myself feel better to do it. Well, what happens? I end up feeling worthless because I can't do it. And then I can't live up to the standard or I feel like on certain days I'm doing a pretty good job. And then I become self-righteous and prideful. So I've basically, essentially, made no progress. I also sometimes try to do things with the motivation of fitting in, even at church. I want to fit in, so that becomes my fuel for change. Well, what happens? I have to be a chameleon, and it gets very tiring because you're all sometimes kind of different. And so I'm trying to fit in with you and then with you, and then it's just very tiring. And sometimes, regardless of what I do, some of you don't like me. So that's painfully frustrating. For me, I mean, it is. And then sometimes, now you probably won't admit this, but I will admit this on our behalf. Sometimes we try to do things because the motivation is we want God to give us something. And we think in our core, if I do this, God will. And that sometimes is my motivation for change. Well, what happens? Either I wake up one day totally ashamed that I've tried to manipulate God or I get really frustrated because, for the record, he loves me way too much to give me everything I ask for. That does not go well for me. Control freaks in the room. Sometimes we just want to control. So that's why we're going to change, and we make ourselves miserable and everyone else around us miserable. Okay, you probably have some more. I have some more. I just thought that's five is probably enough therapy for me. So just to give you some ideas of how I and we all get it wrong, Right? Well, let's finally look at the hope. Here is my favorite part of Titus, right here coming up. Titus 2, 11 through 14. I'm going to read it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, I don't know what your first initial response to that is, but my initial response is, I don't get it. Grace, unmerited favor, getting something I don't deserve means I can eat as many cupcakes as I want and I'm not going to weigh 8,000 pounds. Like, honestly, that's my first response. Does that mean that I just get to get away with whatever I want? Well, let's look and think based on this passage, what are some ways that grace 
actually motivates us to change. We've seen it mentioned in Titus 2. We see um, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people. We've already talked about this also in Titus 3. How does grace help us train and become more holy, more spiritually healthy? Well, how does grace do that? First of all, grace makes it possible. It was not possible for me to be holy prior to Jesus coming down and saving me. It wasn't possible. And I didn't want to. Any internal desire that I have for change is that manifestation of Jesus coming in and giving me a desire to do that. And on top of that, totally, I don't deserve it. He leaves his Holy Spirit within me to give me the power to do it. That is 100% grace that even makes this spiritually healthy thing possible. Now, look with me back. And actually, I feel like there are a hundred answers to this. And it's so deep and fabulous. In fact, if you happen to be around me right when I was studying this, and there are a number of you in the room, I see your faces. I kept going up to people going, how, do, how does grace work as our trainer? Because I think this is such an interesting concept. I was at Larry Cleanan's graduation. Starla's sitting right there, her husband's graduation. And Sally Matthews and Christy Stevens just think they're coming to a graduation party to have some cake. They're stuck at a table with me, and I'm like... All right, ladies, I want to know, how's Grace your trainer? Doesn't it mean you just eat cupcakes? Sally's nodding. We had this conversation at this table because I think it's very interesting and deep. So I want us to think, and I'm not even going to talk about all of them, but if Grace is our trainer, not just our Savior, but our trainer, we need to understand this. If the spiritual health that Paul wants for Titus and Jesus wants for us is going to actually happen, if we're not going to sit in the driveway in our car wondering why am I not going anywhere? So the other three I want us to look at, and we see them in this passage and elsewhere. In verse 13, and again, all throughout Titus, we see Paul referring to um, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Here we see the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in verse 13. There is awe and joy at the person of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There's awe and joy in God, and that is grace. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to know him at all, much less to grow in knowing him and have that awe and joy. Now, let me see if I can illustrate for you how grace and an appreciation and love for something helps us change, and it's an example from my life recently. I inherited from my dad high triglycerides, this form of cholesterol. And for a while, it was under control. And the last few times I've gone to the doctor, they've said, you totally need medication for this. We tried this one vitamin for a couple days, and I experienced every side effect known to mankind on any medicine I take, literally. And so two days, can't do it. And I decide, okay, I might have to get on medication. I know it's inherited. Maybe diet isn't going to impact it at all. But I'm going to see if I can alter my diet and if this is going to help my cholesterol. So this has been Kathy in the month of May hitting it hard. I'm going to see if I can do this and if it's going to affect my cholesterol. And we're just going to see. I mean, it may, it may not. We're just going to see. But I've been hitting it. And how I, this is not the way to do it. This is my way to do it. How I've always done diets because I think God gave us food to enjoy. And I do. So once a week, honestly, once a week, I allow myself to have a decent-sized helping, not a bite, 
but a decent sized helping of whatever I want. And for this, it happens to have been on Sundays I've done it. It's not a magical day. It just works out. And I literally, on Saturdays or Sundays, you will see me pulling out my recipe books. And if you know me, you know the only thing that really matters in the world is sugar. So I don't even think about anything else. Literally, come find me. I am flipping through my dessert menu. I'm like, what am I making this week? And I have a decent helping of it. That's just how I do. Well, on Sunday, I knew that this was coming. And I, the recipe, it was these cookies that have Reese's Pieces, Reese's peanut butter chips, and chocolate in them. Like, this was my, this was going to be my one time a week. I was going to do this. And I, I could have chosen anything, but I had this in mind. And so I was at, um, I went with some friends after church to Blue Mesa for their brunch. Never been there. And I, they were like, we're having the brunch. So I kind of look around the brunch, and there are many yummy things on the brunch. There are omelets. I like omelets. Fajitas, this really yummy chicken pasta thing they kept bragging about at the table, chips and salsa, guac, lots of good things. I want you to know it took almost, and this is true, almost no self-control for me to not eat that. I went back to my table, I sat down, and I gladly ordered my salad. Do you want to know why? I was having cookies that afternoon. <laughs> I knew what I could have, and that omelet cannot compare to that chocolate that was coming. This is grace. We live in a world where things, where omelets are telling us that it's the best thing you can have. And here's the secret. It's not. <laughs> Grace is that you get something better. Look at this quote by C.S. Lewis on your outline. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Grace says you can have Jesus. And we spend our time with way lesser things. If we would focus on the awe and joy of Jesus, it would take, now sometimes it's hard, but there would be moments where it takes almost no self-control to turn away from something that's okay, but it's nothing, nothing compared to what you could have. Along with knowing him, we see it all throughout this passage. There's God's motivation behind what he wants to give us. We saw it, um, we see in Titus chapter 2, he wants to purify himself of people for his own position. God wants us to be his. He wants to give us the benefits of spiritual health, of freedom, of joy, of peace, of the whole reason Paul wrote Titus in chapter 1. He wants their faith to be strong. He wants them to know the truth. He wants godliness. That is grace. I don't deserve that. That's my trainer. That's the grace that says, Kath, let that control go. There is something better. Kathy, let that pride go. There is something better. Kathy, let whatever it is go because grace is offering you something far better that you don't deserve. In verse 13, we also see a key part of what that grace is. 
waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a hope of the future. We have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of Jesus coming back. And much like an athlete, let certain things go for the goal at the end. That is grace. That I'm in heaven is grace. And that is grace that gets me up and says, I can let go of certain things because of the prize and because of what is coming. That is grace is my trainer that says, Kath, let those things go and take this which you're offered. So what's our application? Well, if you happen to be here tonight and you're checking out Christianity and you've never gotten to taste of grace or Jesus, um, man, believe, you don't got to do anything. In fact, you can't do anything. That's the whole glory of it. You just believe in Jesus and you get him. For those of us that may know Jesus, um, there are times that we use things other than grace as our trainer or instructor. And there's some benefits to some of these things. There's some benefits to knowing what's in the scriptures, the list, all these things we need to do. There's some benefits to those things. But that isn't the primary focus of and primary fuel that we're putting in our car. The way to spiritual health, a spiritual healthy church, a spiritual healthy life, is to be fueled by grace. And as we study this summer in Titus, as well as in Philemon and Jude, I wanted to be sure that I laid us a foundation because we are going to talk about change. And the Bible's going to press on some things in our lives, and it's going to press on some pretty specific things. But I wanted to make sure that we're putting the right fuel in our car to recognize what's the impetus and the motivation and the training behind that change. And I think there's so much more to the grace of God being our trainer. And so if you run into me this week, I'm probably going to ask you what it is because I think it's really interesting to think about. I just didn't have enough time to put it all in here. But that's the glory of the Bible. It's super awesome. So I'm excited for us to all be here this summer moving toward individual spiritual health, corporate spiritual health, looking at those ways that we're not perfect and being willing to change, looking at the things in our culture, some of them which can stay and some of them which need to go to the dumpster, and being sure that we are fueling ourselves by grace instead of by the other things that we try to fuel our change.